The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. In today's podcast, NPS student Joe Novak sits down and has a cup of coffee with second-generation physicist Dr. Frank Narducci. So welcome to the Trident Room, Dr. Narducci. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I googled famous Italian physicists, and you know some of the big ones came up, Fermi, Volta, Galvani, who discovered uh, bioelectricity in, in frog legs. And I found L.M. Narducci. Can you tell me a little bit about him? Sure can. I can tell you a lot. Lorenzo Narducci was my father. He uh, got his degree in Milan, spent about a year or so teaching physics in high school. He was driven a lot, uh, like me, he must have passed the genes on to me, to to be a, a university professor. He found an academic position in Massachusetts took his bride at the time and six-week-old son, which would be me, Mm -hmm. uh, from Italy, moved to Massachusetts. Spent 10 years there, then he moved to Drexel University where he completed his career as a physics professor. He's really my most uh, inspirational physicist. You know, watching him go to work because he enjoyed going to work. You know, he just could not wait to get to work. He was so excited. Mm -hmm. And then as an undergraduate, I was an undergraduate at Drexel University where he was a a professor. Mm -hmm. So I could even see him in his work environment. And he just loved being there. Mm. Um, And I had him as a professor. Mm-hmm. And he oh, loved right? teaching, yes. Okay. <laughs> you know, and he just loved teaching. He what loved was your grade in that research. class? I got an A. <laughs> not because it was a gift, because I said, my father is not going to stump me on any question. <laughs> that was kind of my role model, both from a growing up perspective, but also from a professional perspective. Hmm. You said uh, maybe the love of physics was passed in the genes. So nature and nurture. How did he nurture the love of physics? In uh, interesting. So... Um, there wasn't anything that he did overtly, you know. It's not like when I was growing up, you know, oh, you've got to study physics or anything. It wasn't like that at all. It was just, uh, in some sense, a passive way. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one, like I said, I, I watched him and I saw that he enjoyed what he was doing. Sure. Um, but then I just remember as a kid, you know, he would take me to the lab when he used to be an experimentalist and he would just show me kind of cool little demos, you know, heat up a a bucket of water that's got a cork in it and the cork goes flying off, Mm -hmm. you know, stand on a a table that that rotates and, you know, my little lessons in angular momentum, open your hands and Mm -hmm. close your hands, you spin faster, that type of stuff. And that kind of instilled a love of science. Wonderful. Um, you know, like I said, it was never directed. He never pushed me towards physics, but just kind of showing me the wonderful world of science mm-hmm. was great. So you have on the order of uh, 130 publications or so when I uh, check Google Scholar. Uh, any of those in there attributable to your father, or do you continue any of his specific work? So yes and no. Uh, let me dodge the question slightly for just a second. Sure. Um, one of the things that I did do when I was uh, an undergraduate is make the decision, okay, you know, you know here's my dad, very well-respected scientist in, in his field. Um, I'm going to distinguish myself from him. 
mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so the way I do that is I became an experimentalist. He at the time was primarily a theorist. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, and but having said that, there are some papers that we uh, wrote together, or oh, nice. at least started to write, and then he didn't like so. I finished them, but in the general field of uh, of light atom interaction, that was kind mm-hmm. of what he did the last ten or so years of his life. Is the field that I do now, mm-hmm. but from an experimental perspective. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, yeah, I'm kind of carrying that on. Hmm. Did that just happen, or you you had the same interest as your father for the uh, for carrying on that work, or there was um, a niche there? I guess I would say, as an undergraduate, I decided I wanted to do experimental physics. So one of the things I tried uh, was uh, experimental laser physics. Mm-hmm. So my dad was a theoretical laser physicist. So mm-hmm. I talked to his experimental counterpart, mm-hmm. um, you know, and started working with him. And it, I just really liked it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I went to grad school, I went someplace else. I went to University of Rochester mm-hmm. um, and just continued loving that laser atom interaction. That so maybe it's in the genes. Maybe it was the way I was brought up, but. Mm-hmm. That's how it happened. Yeah, so the best investment I've made in myself is education. Mm-hmm. I knew myself, even as a, as a 20-something-year-old, that uh, if I left school, I would probably not go back. Mm-hmm. So I made a decision. It's going to be high school, undergraduate, graduate, PhD, straight through. Mm-hmm. Don't stop because then I lose momentum and I'm, and I'm out of the picture. It was that decision coupled with, I want to get a PhD, I want to do research, I want to be able to to think critically about problems that maybe nobody else is thinking about. Mm-hmm. So, you know, getting the PhD does take time. I went to a college that is a five-year program rather than a four-year program. Mm-hmm. So that's five years undergraduate, two years for a master's, five more years for a PhD. So mm-hmm. it's a long-term investment, but that was, I think, worth it for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, great. So with this vast amount of knowledge uh, that you have to know uh, when you're doing your work, how do you stay on top of the literature? Ah, uh, that, I will admit, freely admit, is one of my downfalls. <laughs> okay. It is very hard to stay on top of, uh, of what's coming out, absolutely. My strategy when I am finally saying, you know, I really need to see what's out there, is to try to, to really limit it. One danger when you start doing a literature search is, mm-hmm. oh, hey, there's this cool paper. Not exactly relevant to what I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. And you have to be careful not to go down the path of, let me read that. I mean, you can, and, it, and it's worthwhile doing, keeping in mind it's a side issue. So mm-hmm. there is a vast amount of literature out there, mm-hmm. and, and it is hard to stay on top of it. So physicists dance to music that the rest of us don't hear. You guys, I mean, in some ways, you, you just... You live on another plane of sorts. <laughs> I don't know. We're always pegged, right, as as nerds and, uh-huh. and geeky people, mm-hmm. um, and you know that 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 guy that can't socialize, um, and we're not. Okay. I think I think we're on the whole we're we're pretty sociable people. Okay. Um, you know that's that's number one. Um, I guess number two, what other people get wrong about science in general and physics in particular. It's really not hard. It really isn't. Um, and, and here's why I say <laughs> that. Yeah, right? Um, so part of the problem, part of the problem is in the United States, our secondary education system is not so great, mm-hmm. and particularly in physics. A lot of our physics teachers never majored in physics mm-hmm. and never minored in physics. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, and so a lot of people go to college and they say, well, I don't want to be a physicist. I was bored in my physics class. I had a terrible physics teacher. <laughs> so we've already set them up to not like physics. It's, it's really not hard if you set the foundation in the beginning. Mm -hmm. As a personal experience, my very, very first physics class in high school was a double lab period, mm -hmm. and the teacher spent one and a half hours doing demos. Mm. It was beautiful. It was beautiful because he just did one demo after the other, didn't explain anything, mm. and at the end, I still remember, he said, by the end of this year, you will be able to explain everything. Oh, all right. What, an, you know, what a way of grabbing our attention. Yeah. Um, so I think, so, so that's, I think, what society gets wrong about science and, and physicists. Mm -hmm. It's not hard. But what you do need to have is you need to have the blood for it. You need to really love it. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's not hard. It really isn't. They will be able to teach you the most complicated phenomena, mm -hmm. you know, and make it understandable. You know, that's the mark of a good professor, right? Absolutely, um, yeah. You know, we've got a lot of people that can do that. So science is really not that hard. When one looks at the scale of the universe, mm -hmm. so the scale of the observable universe being about 10 to the 27th meters, and the scale of the smallest scale we know within the quantum world, that being the Planck length of about about uh, 10 to the negative 35th. Man, I, I can't wrap my head around that. Mm -hmm. What what is does that tell me anything about reality? Does that is that reassuring? Should I be terrified and, and, and crying in the corner? What those numbers are just so f mind mind boggling. Uh, yeah. Could, could you just help me out? Sure. So it's a little bit like the comment I made about going into your first quantum class mm -hmm. and you have classical intuition. Why do you have classical intuition? That's the world you live in, right? And then eventually you develop a quantum intuition. So for me, I can't imagine what 10 to the 10 meters is or 10 to the 15 meters or 10 to the 27 meters. I can't. Mm -hmm. That's not the world I live in. Likewise, even at the Planck scale, that's not the world I live in. So I'm somewhere in between. I am used to dealing with atoms. Atoms are on the scale of... 10 to the minus 10 meters. Mm -hmm. Light has a wavelength of 10 to the minus 6 meters. You know, atomic processes tend to happen on the nanosecond time scale, 10 to the minus 9. So what happens is you kind of get used to thinking about things on that scale. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's just because that's where we live. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the way I grapple with that. You know, if you suddenly asked me, well, now get comfortable in a world where 10 to the 15 makes sense, then I'll start studying cosmology or something. Well, that's where I'm in, you know, embedded in a, a daily world. Sure. But the beauty of science, and in particularly the beauty of experimental science, is I deal with these atoms that are 10 to the minus 10 in size. Mm -hmm. They accumulate for me the signal that I'm interested in. Interested in, for example, a rotation signal, mm -hmm. and I can use my classical instruments, my oscilloscopes, and my spectrum analyzers to extract that information back out and present it to me in a classical world. Some countries tend to pick specific technologies where they are going to be the master mm -hmm. uh, of, of AI or a specific subset of AI or quantum in this case. Right. What are some musts that the U.S. excuse me, the U.S. must become proficient and the masters of? Oh, that's a good question. Um, and, and of course it's quite broad, but maybe a, a couple that you think are just absolute, yeah, we, we need this. Well, I mean, my first one would be quantum sensors because that's what I'm working <laughs> yeah. on. Yep. Sure. Um, 
I've been learning a little bit about kind of this artificial intelligence, machine learning. That one, I think, uh, has some great promise as well. Mm-hmm. You know, but I would I would say in my own world, I probably don't have a big enough uh, aperture mm-hmm. to really identify where we should be investing in. But having said that, what we really should be investing in is is education. You know, but mostly of the people who are eventually going to be making those kind of decisions. Mm-hmm. I feel like the people that are making the decisions, I shouldn't. There are a lot of smart people out there, a lot of smart people making these types of decisions, but at the same time, a lot of people who are not so proficient making decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. And you know, I was reading uh, just uh, the other day, actually, the um, uh, the, the three-year strategic vision of the Navy. And one of their, I'm looking it up right now, okay. one of their initiatives is invest in human capital and prioritize learning as a strategic advantage. Yeah. Uh, uh, one of their main priorities. So that's that's good to see and good to see it's congruent with what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, technology is going to evolve. Something's going to come up that, uh, you know, either we develop or somebody else develops that is going to be the technology we have to invest in. And it's going to take a while to develop the students who will have that deep knowledge Mm -hmm. so what we need in the meantime are people who are smart in key positions who have been really well educated Mm -hmm. so that they can take what they know and say okay i'm going to learn about this new field and i can teach myself that new field Mm -hmm. and make intelligent decisions Mm -hmm. wonderful now right along those lines you are now the, the the navy chief scientist or the cno if you want to be what are you going to do? What, what are you going to change? Uh, wh- how are you going to make your vision uh, a reality? So it basically goes right back to that that idea. I would invest invest in our, uh, you know, our students or our future leaders. Let's call them that. Our future leaders and give them really um, the knowledge base that they need. So my perspective coming in from the the twenty years I spent at the Syscoms, mm-hmm. um, you know, the our. our our military guys have been trained to go out and drive ships and fly airplanes and, and you know kick indoors, do whatever they have to do, right? Now they're being put into program offices, right, and making the technical decisions, mm-hmm. or at least aiding in the technical decisions, without a really solid technical background. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, kind of anybody comes along with a good sales pitch, and so we need to invest in our human capital that way. Okay, good. No, I, I like that. Great answer. If you could publish just one achievable paper uh, with a realistic goal, you know, as of 2020, what would the title be and what would the abstract read like? You know, part of me wants to say I would love to have the paper that, you know, revolutionizes the, the world as we live. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, realistically, that's not going to happen. Okay. I'm not that smart. So no unifying theory. You know, no, no uni- There's no okay. grand unifying theory for me, at least. But what's interesting, and in, in, so let me let me back up a second. Um, I would love to be able to write the paper that uh, you know revolutionizes the world, but in a good way, right? Sure. Now our living environment is better, right? Mm-hmm. How do we avoid Corona 19? Mm-hmm. Right. That's not my field, and I'm not that smart, so I, I can't come up with that kind of paper. A paper I could realistically write might, you know, stretch goal might be, um, currently in my field, mm-hmm. we're looking at testing some of Einstein's theories. Okay. You know, uh, is there an experiment I could do where we can do those tests? Mm-hmm. You know, yes. 
you know, how does the world benefit by that? Well, we're not going to have a better cell phone. We're not going to have a better self-driving car. But it could open up new areas of science. Mm -hmm. and, and that would really be, you know, something I would be very proud of. You know, could we do that here at NPS? Stretch goal, but yes, we could. Wow. Yeah, we could. So, you know, that would be the paper I would write mm -hmm. that says, hey, uh, Einstein's theory, you know, was correct, but we have discovered this new facet mm -hmm. that will now open up new areas of exploration. Mm -hmm. uh, say 10 years from now, what's going to be different about Dr. Narducci in 10 years? Uh, well, good question. When he publishes um, the paper. Yeah, on, once I publish uh, that paper, uh, right? Um, <laughs> you know, I will, uh, kind of circling back a little bit to um, to one of the questions you asked about kind of time management, an administrative thing. I will be the first to admit one of my downfalls is I do tend to get that hyper-focused physics perspective and maybe mm -hmm. not so much life. Okay. So I would like to find a bit of a better balance between life and physics. So what that would mean from the pro professional perspective is being maybe more efficient at the physics side of life so mm -hmm. that I can enjoy outside of physics mm -hmm. better. So that that's kind of one of my things that I'm working on, you know, aspects about me that I'm working on is, okay, come do physics. It's not going to be nine to five. That's fine. But it doesn't have to be 24-7. Sure. And the work you do requires exceptional amounts of concentration and focus, presumably for uninterrupted amounts of time. You know, it's 2020, there's, you know, bells and whistles going off all the time, there's emails, there's this, there's that, there's the phone. Right. How do you get to the level of deep work that you need to forward your, uh, your thinking, your work, your, your experiments? Yeah, uh, great question. So m my wife will probably laugh when she hears the answer to this. I do have a tendency to sometimes get hyper-focused. Oh, okay. Um, so uh, I, I do follow some standard practices. I will turn the email off. Okay. I have a family, so I don't turn the cell phone off, but I do turn the sure. email off, try to limit the number of bells and things that go off. But sometimes when I'm working on a problem, I will get hyper-focused, and I will totally miss text messages that come in or things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, how do I do it? Um, do you have a ritual that you use or do you just a place that you... A, a you know? place, really. Um, I do work at home, even pre-COVID-19, but I do try to do the bulk of my work in the office, mm -hmm. right, and t try to maintain some separability between family life and, and office. Mm -hmm. So I do try to work in the office. Um, I don't close the door because I do like to be available to mm -hmm. my students at all times, but it's almost closed. Mm -hmm. So if you want to talk to me, you can come in. That person who walks by the hallway is probably not going to come in. Sure. And so that gives me that, you know, quiet space to focus. And by the way, having a basement lab down away from traffic is a beautiful place as well. Okay, nice. How long can you maintain your focus? Actually, long time. If I'm uninterrupted, you know, at least a few hours before I'll even move from my desk. Nice. Would you would you explain it as kind of a flow state for yourself? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I always, you know, would tell people is when I'm when I'm working, and and this is true of many physicists. I've heard many physicists say the same thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, you're going to come in with a fast question. Hey, professor, I've got a thirty second question. For my students, that's fine. That's great, but it will probably take me five or 10 minutes mm 
to come from that 30-second question and get back to that deep state of thinking. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I've been reading a deep work by uh, Cal Newport, mm -hmm. and he discusses this exact issue that we might think it's just 10 seconds, oh, it's just looking at the text message, but that actually impacts the successive five, 10 minutes. And yep. You can't get to the level we were at before. Yeah. Um, and so those of you, uh, well, all of us really, but uh, folks like you really have to make that a science to, to get to that level of, um, of thinking. Yeah, you can kind of think of it like a zone. Yeah. Um, and you know, once you've been pulled out of that deep zone, it takes a while to get back. Yeah, absolutely. Of your publications, give us uh, maybe a highlight and a low light. W one of the pubs uh, that you are very proud of, uh, and it, it, it pushed the, the the field forward, and another one that eh, maybe maybe you don't feel as good about in 2020. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, let me start with the uh, the the, the bottom side. Okay. Um, so, I don't think, at least I hope, there are no failures and there are no wrong papers mm -hmm. here. You know, at least as part of the review process, we hope that no papers get published that are wrong. There are some papers that I would say I feel less good about only because, well, we did a study, we got some results, so we published them. Are they going to change the world? No. Mm -hmm. Okay. Just as a kind of, as an example, Re uh, Raman spectroscopy in the presence of stray resonant light. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that paper just came about because we were doing some experiments, and the experiments worked fine, but they didn't work as well as we thought, so mm -hmm. let's go track down what the problem is. And so we tracked down the problem, we did some simulations, we showed that's the problem, fine. Does it change things? Nah, not so much. Okay. So, you know, I wouldn't call that my bottom paper, but sure. that's one that's just kind of like, yeah, it's a study, we did it, big deal. More, you know, what I'm, I'm proud of, there are two that I'd like to point to. One is a paper on T-cubed interferometers for atoms. Mm -hmm and uh, atom interferometry and its applications. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, I'm sorry, there's a third one kind of in that whole realm, this composite light pulse technique for high precision atom interferometry. And I really like those papers, not so much because it has a, a game-changing message in it, but it's because those were papers that came out of me collaborating with some really top-notch scientists mm -hmm and me feeling like I made a significant contribution to those papers. Mm -hmm. So one in particular, the composite uh, pulse paper, that's an experimental paper. I didn't actually do any of the experiments. They sent me some of their work and I looked at it and I critiqued it and I sent them, I said, well, you know, here's what I think. Mm -hmm. And I sent it back to them and the guy wrote to me and said, you know, you've done more work on this paper than some of our authors. Why don't you join us? <laughs> That's great. Um, which I thought was great. So I can put my name to some of these really big names uh, and feel like I've done something. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about uh, quantum, okay. uh, quantum mechanics, quantum physics. Can you give us a quick overview of, uh, just a, a general overview of what is quantum physics? And then I, I really want to talk about quantum sensors. Okay, awesome. So, uh, so quantum physics, you know, one of the reasons I really like quantum physics is it's really bizarre. We, as humans, don't live in a quantum world. Um, so quantum mechanics came out of studying physics at the atomic and subatomic levels. 
okay, where things don't behave the way we picture them, mm-hmm. right? When we are growing up, we as, as students are growing up, how are we initially taught about the atom? We're taught about a planetary model, and so we have a hard sphere proton and a little electron that's orbiting, and that is not quantum physics mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. That electron is not there. It's really just, it might be there, but it might be over here, but it might be over here. It's a probabilistic mm-hmm. um, science. And and so that's kind of um, you know why I like it. It's a bizarre world. Um, what I teach my students also is, you come into quantum mechanics, you have your classical intuition, right? Your everyday intuition. Mm-hmm. Once you've taken quantum mechanics enough, you start developing a quantum intuition, mm-hmm. which is how to predict these really weird behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what makes it so interesting is that you can get this very weird behavior. Okay, so things are weird in the quantum universe. Right. How do we make that weirdness uh, work for us in the Navy? Right, particularly in the realm of quantum, let's say quantum technologies, um, there are really three big pushes. Mm -hmm. You've got your quantum sensors and your quantum communication and then your quantum computing. Mm -hmm. Now, the person on the street is most likely to have heard about quantum computers Mm -hmm. um, because Everybody and his brother has at least one laptop, and they've got their phones, and their phones can have all sorts of interesting quantum, uh, interesting computing power. Mm-hmm. So we can relate to a quantum computer, and what people typically envision is that the quantum computer is going to be this amazing machine, blazingly fast, um, which is true, but only for a very, very, very specific set of problems. So a quantum computer is not going to be the latest greatest gaming machine. Sure. It's not going to be this super fast surfing the internet type of machine. And quantum communication um, is another one where now we can communicate uh, securely uh, either by way of encryption or by way of um, the, the actual method by which we communicate that's protected by the laws of quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. So as an example, uh, let me divert a little bit into encryption. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, your your credit card number is secure because it's based on factoring of large numbers. Factoring large numbers is a hard problem, right? If I asked you what is the product of uh, 21 and 37 in one second or so or two seconds, you can work it out and you've got an algorithm to do that, get an answer. Mm-hmm. If I give you a number that's 10 digits long and ask you to factor it, (laughs) especially if it's a product of prime numbers, Mm -hmm. it's going to take you a long time. Why? Because the only thing you have to do is to try it, you know, every combination. Sure. That's what your encryption is based on. But it can be broken given enough time, Mm -hmm. right? With, With quantum security, now it's protected by the laws of quantum mechanics. You know, you can't break this encryption scheme because it's based on some of the quantum science. Mm-hmm. Quantum communication is very much the same way. You and I can share keys and we can pass messages back and forth that can't be intercepted and cannot be, that, that are protected by the laws of quantum physics. Mm-hmm. Sensors is a slightly different uh, bent. The way I would describe sensors is we exploit the weirdness of quantum mechanics to make a better sensor. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I, uh, I have to be careful when I say this, I can't think of a sensor right now that we, we can't do in a classical sense as well, but just in the quantum world, it's better. 
Okay. So, for example, um, like I said, the work that I do, measuring acceleration, mm -hmm. we can do that with classical devices, just quantum mechanically we can do it better. Mm -hmm. um, rotation sensing, we can do better, but we've got classical rotation sensors, that mm -hmm. type of stuff. What are some more examples of, of uh, utilization, operational utilization of uh, quantum sensing? So, for example, uh, a marine infantryman mm -hmm. picking indoors, uh, a special warfare officer or, or um, special warfare uh, subs, space, etc. Sure. Okay. Well, let's start with uh, let's start with the gravimeter, um, and actually, I'm going to do a, a, a variant on that. So, it, I can take two gravimeters, right? They're they're measuring gravity, and I'm going to separate them by about a meter okay. vertically. Okay. So, put one on the ground and one at waist level. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I'm going to measure gravity. And you're going to say, well, that's kind of a dumb thing to do, right? You're going to get the same answer, right? Gravity is gravity. Ah, no, it's not. There is actually a very small difference in those two measurements because the gravimeter that's higher is further away from the center of the Earth. So gravity is a little bit less. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I can take that device now and move it around and use it to help me find areas of local gravity that change a little bit. Mm -hmm. That would be another way of saying a hidden tunnel mm -hmm. or a cave. So now let's go to Afghanistan where we might be trying to find where's the Taliban hidden, where, you know, um, is ISIS hidden, mm -hmm. where are some of the caves. We could use some of these uh, gravity gradiometers to try to find tunnels, let's mm -hmm. say. For, that's a one example. Uh, does it have the fidelity that even an IED these sensors can pick up? So with IEDs, my understanding is at the moment, no. And IEDs are probably better detected, um, maybe using some of their magnetic signatures. If you've got metal in there, that's usually a better mm -hmm. signature. But one could envision eventually getting there. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, again, keeping in mind, of course, to be useful, you got to move this stuff around. And so we'll have to get to the technology where I don't have to take the instrument, set it on the ground, and wait for it to settle for 24 hours before I move <laughs> sure. it. But then kind of circling back to your question, um, where else can I do this, uh, use this technology? Gyroscopes is the big one that I'm focused on. Mm -hmm. um, as I said, submarines go under the water, they lose GPS, and then they're told, okay, I want you to navigate from here to here, you know, with with no GPS. Well, we can't do that nowadays, mm -hmm. depending on... How close do you need to end, you know, to get to your target? Mm -hmm. So right now, if you're under the water, you have to navigate with our laser ring gyros. They have their own drift. Um, so these atomic sensors that we're developing, these quantum sensors, uh, will have lower drift. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another application. Mm -hmm. So going back to the application, so navigation without GPS is really mm -hmm. the big one. Mm -hmm. We can also think about using quantum sensors for, um, for magnetic detection, so IEDs would be one. Mm -hmm. Submarine detection, so now the opposite problem. Mm -hmm. um, you know, where's the bad guy's submarine? You can use quantum sensors to detect their magnetic signature. Mm -hmm. So that might be another application that they should be interested in. Any biomedical applications? Uh, yep. Um, so right now, if you need to go in for, um, you know, for an MRI where they stick in the big tube, mm -hmm. Um, and you've got these big magnets that circle around you. First of all, that's always done in a shielded environment, and you've got these big magnets, and, and I don't know if you've ever had one done. I had one done. It can be very claustrophobic. Sure. You're in something the size of a coffin, and you've got this big clanking thing next to you. Very loud. Yeah, very loud, and, and you're in a confined space. Mm -hmm. 
what if I could make a sensor that didn't need these big clanking magnets because it's sensitive enough? Mm -hmm. uh, and I've seen research by, uh, by others, um, Princeton, for example, where they just have a little helmet that they put on your head, um, very lightweight, no noise, mm -hmm. and they can map out, map out with magnetic signals what your brain is doing. Mm -hmm. wow. So that's, that's another biomedical application. Mm -hmm. What are some, uh, we've spoken about uh, primarily military applications, what mm -hmm. commercial applications are there out there for uh, quantum sensors and what is the state of um, uh, the, the commercial sector researching quantum sensors? So that was a, a little trickier I because I think this is a technology for the moment. By the way, we have not talked about clocks. That's also in, in there. Mm -hmm. From the commercial sector, I feel like DOD is is pulling the technology rather than the commercial sector driving it. I think, for example, right now we have you know sensors in our car, these um, smart cars that drive themselves, um, which I would never want to trust. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know we do have accelerometers and, and gyroscopes in them, mm -hmm. and they're probably good enough or getting good enough. Mm -hmm. I don't think quantum sensors is going to help there. Mm -hmm. So I think at the moment, I think it's being DOD pulled okay. rather than a push <coughs> from, from industry. Now, having said that, mm -hmm. I do have friends in industry that are working in quantum sensors, mm -hmm. um, but they are mostly for the DOD applications. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I read, uh, it was a couple years back even, about a, a quantum sensor application <coughs> for the door kickers, for our Marines or, or uh, others on the ground that can see around corners. Can you talk a little bit about that? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no problem. Um, uh, so uh, I, I guess I can't think of a quantum technology that can do that. If I just have to speculate, I would say maybe um, maybe there's some kind of sensor that, you know, okay, let, let's back up a second, right? Why can we not see around doors, right? Because the light beams won't, or light rays won't, get around um, being able to see that, but acoustic waves do. That's why I can hear around a door without having line of sight. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's some kind of acoustic sensor that can then be translated into a visual. Pure guessing on my part. Mm -hmm. um, but that would not be a quantum technology. Okay. Going back a little bit just to quantum uh, communications, mm -hmm. uh, the first quantum um, uh, satellite video call uh, took place in 2017. Correct in the U.S. wasn't a part of that. Correct. Is the U.S. behind in uh, quantum communications? Yeah, so my, my resounding answer to that one is we are miles behind. Hmm. Miles behind. So that demonstration is one that I'm familiar with. I've read that paper mm -hmm. um, and, and have heard about it in various talks and things like that. Uh, so when I go to conferences, I do talk to some of my, my Chinese colleagues, and I was told early on you know, even before 2017, you know, let's say five years or more before mm -hmm. that, the the message they gave me was money is no object, mm -hmm. which is unheard of in the research world. Uh, the Chinese decided that they were going to invest and invest heavily and invest in long term and set up the infrastructure for quantum technologies. Mm -hmm. The U.S. has not done that. Mm -hmm. um, yes, we have invested in quantum technologies, the tri-services, the ONR, the AROs, um, they have invested in quantum technologies, but nowhere near the level of the, the Chinese, for example. Mm -hmm. And it has to be long-term. We have to understand that things cannot go from a scientist's brain to 
a demonstration like uh, what the Chinese did in two years, in three years. You can't go for that's too too short of a time scale. Um, so we are, and, and by the way, the Chinese uh, as a whole, they're really smart people, mm. you know, um, and there are a lot of them. So th they're really working hard in this technology. So we are, we are definitely behind, mm -hmm. miles behind. Mm. Um, the European Union has also invested heavily. They have uh, quantum hubs that they've now set up where they've invested heavily from a different perspective, not a fundamental research perspective, but a let's get quantum technology out to the commercial sector. Oh, okay. And so they've invested heavily in that mm -hmm. as well. Um, and I have not seen something equivalent to that. Sure. Uh, the U.S. has now finally, within the last year or so, passed the quantum initiative. You know, and great thumbs up. I'm a little skeptical because I have the feeling what's going to happen is it's not real dollars being invested. Mm -hmm. I think it's a we're going to pool the agencies and ask them, you know, how are they investing in quantum technologies? And then they're going to say, there's our investment. Mm -hmm. So no real dollars. Mm. Speculation on my part. I could be totally sure. wrong. I, I hope I am. Yeah. But that's my take on it. I mean, the work you do requires exceptional amounts of concentration and focus presumably for uninterrupted amounts of time. You know, it's 2020, there's, you know, bells and whistles going off all the time. There's emails, there's this, there's that, there's the phone. Right. How do you get to the level of deep work that you need to forward your, uh, your thinking, your work, your, your experiments? Yeah, uh, great question. So m my wife will probably laugh when she hears the answer to this. I do have a tendency to sometimes get hyper-focused. Oh, okay. Um, so uh, I, I do follow some standard practices. I will turn the email off. Okay. I have a family, so I don't turn the cell phone off, but I do turn the sure. email off, try to limit the number of bells and things that go off. But sometimes when I'm working on a problem, I will get hyper-focused, and I will totally miss text messages that come in or things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, how do I do it? Um, do you have a ritual that you use, or do you just a place that you, A, a you know? place, really. Um, I do work at home, even pre-COVID-19, but I do try to do the bulk of my work in the office, mm -hmm. right, and t try to maintain some separability between family life and, and office. Mm -hmm. So I do try to work in the office. Um, I don't close the door because I do like to be available to mm -hmm. my students at all times, but it's almost closed. Mm -hmm. So if you want to talk to me, you can come in. That person who walks by the hallway is probably not going to come in. Sure. And so that gives me that, you know, quiet space to focus. And by the way, having a basement lab down away from traffic is a beautiful place as well. Okay, nice. How long can you maintain your focus? <laughs> Actually, long time. If I'm uninterrupted, you know, at least a few hours before I'll even move from my desk. Nice. Would you, would you explain it as kind of a flow state for yourself? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I always you know, would tell people is when I'm when I'm working, and, and this is true of many physicists, I've heard many physicists say the same thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, you're going to come in with a fast question. Hey, professor, I've got a 30-second question. For my students, that's fine. That's great. But it will probably take me five or ten minutes to come from that 30-second question and get back to that deep state of Absolutely. thinking. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I have been reading a deep work by uh, Cal Newport, mm -hmm. and he discusses this exact issue that we might think it's just 10 seconds, oh, it's just looking at the text message, but that actually impacts the successive 
five, ten minutes, and yep. you can't get to the level we were at before. Yeah. Um, and so those of you, uh, well, all of us really, but uh, folks like you really have to make that a science to, to get to that level of um, of thinking. Yeah, you can kind of think of it like a zone. Yeah. Um, and, you know, once you've been pulled out of that deep zone, it takes a while to get back. Yeah, absolutely. Of your publications, give us uh, maybe a highlight and a low light. One of the pubs uh, that you are very proud of, uh, and it, it, it pushed the, the, the field forward, and another one that, eh, maybe maybe you don't feel as good about in 2020. Okay, uh, okay. well, let me start with the, uh, the, the, the bottom side. Okay. Um, so, I don't think, at least I hope, there are no failures and there are no wrong papers mm-hmm. here. You know, at least as part of the review process, we hope that no papers get published that are wrong. There are some papers that I would say I feel less good about only because, well, we did a study, we got some results, so we published them. Are they going to change the world? No. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just as a kind of, as an example, Re- uh, Raman spectroscopy in the presence of stray resonant light. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that paper just came about because we were doing some experiments, and the experiments worked fine, but they didn't work as well as we thought, so mm-hmm. let's go track down what the problem is. And so we tracked down the problem, we did some simulations, we showed that's the problem, fine. Does it change things? Nah, not so much. Okay. So, you know, I wouldn't call that my bottom paper, but sure. that's one that's just kind of like, yeah, it's a study, we did it, big deal. More, you know, what I'm, I'm proud of, there are two that I'd like to point to, one is a paper on T-cubed interferometers for atoms mm-hmm. and uh, atom interferometry and its applications. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, I'm sorry, there's a third one kind of in that whole realm. It's composite light pulse technique for high precision atom interferometry. And I really like those papers, not so much because it has a, a game-changing message in it, but it's because those were papers that came out of me collaborating with some really top-notch scientists Mm -hmm. and me feeling like I made a significant contribution to those papers. Mm -hmm. So one in particular, the composite uh, pulse paper, that's an experimental paper. I didn't actually do any of the experiments. They sent me some of their work and I looked at it and I critiqued it and I sent them, I said, well, you know, here's what I think. And I sent it back to them, and the guy wrote to me and said, you know, you've done more work on this paper than some of our authors. Why don't you join us? <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, which I thought was great. So I can put my name to some of these really big names uh, and feel like I've done something. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about uh, quantum, okay. uh, quantum mechanics, quantum physics. Can you give us a quick overview of, uh, just a, a general overview of what is quantum physics, and then I, I really want to talk about quantum sensors. Okay, awesome. So uh, so quantum physics, you know, one of the reasons I really like quantum physics is it's really bizarre. We, as humans, don't live in a quantum world. Um, so quantum mechanics came out of studying physics at the atomic and subatomic levels, okay, where things don't behave the way we picture them. Mm-hmm. Right When we are growing up, we as, as students are growing up, how are we initially taught about the atom? We're talking about a planetary model, and so we have a hard sphere proton and a little electron that's orbiting, and that is not quantum physics at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. That electron is not there. It's really just, it might be there, but it might be over here, but it might be over here. It's a probabilistic mm-hmm. um, science. 
and and so that's kind of um, you know why I like it. It's a bizarre world. Um, what I teach my students also is, you come into quantum mechanics, you have your classical intuition, right? Your everyday intuition. Mm -hmm. Once you've taken quantum mechanics enough, you start developing a quantum intuition, hmm. which is how to predict these really weird behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, but that's what makes it so interesting, is that you can get this very weird behavior. Okay, so things are weird in the quantum universe. Right. How do we make that weirdness uh, work for us in the Navy? Right, particularly in the realm of quantum, let's, let's say quantum technologies, um, there are really three big pushes. Mm -hmm. You've got your quantum sensors, and your quantum communication, and then your quantum computing. Mm -hmm. Now, the person on the street is most likely to have heard about quantum computers mm -hmm. um, because everybody and his brother has at least one laptop and they've got their phones and their phones can have all sorts of interesting, quantum, uh, interesting computing power. Mm -hmm. So we can relate to a quantum computer and what people typically envision is that the quantum computer is going to be this amazing machine blazingly fast, um, which is true, but only for a very, very, very specific set of problems. So a quantum computer is not going to be the latest, greatest gaming machine. Sure. It's not going to be this super fast surfing the internet type of machine. And quantum communication um, is another one where now we can communicate uh, securely, uh, either by way of encryption or by way of um, the, the actual method by which we communicate, that's protected by the laws of quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. So as an example, uh, let me divert a little bit into encryption, mm -hmm. right? Uh, your, your credit card number is secure because it's based on factoring of large numbers. Factoring large numbers is a hard problem, right? If I asked you what is the product of uh, 21 and 37 in one second or so or two seconds, you can work it out and you've got an algorithm to do that, get an answer. Mm -hmm. If I give you a number that's 10 digits long and ask you to factor it, <laughs> especially if it's a product of prime numbers, mm -hmm. it's going to take you a long time. Why? Because the only thing you have to do is to try it, you know, every combination. Sure. That's what your encryption is based on. But it can be broken given enough time, mm -hmm. right? With, with quantum security, now it's protected by the laws of quantum mechanics. You know, you can't break this encryption scheme because it's based on some of the quantum science. Mm -hmm. Quantum communication is very much the same way. You and I can share keys and we can pass messages back and forth that can't be intercepted and cannot be, that, that are protected by the laws of quantum physics. Mm -hmm. Sensors is a slightly different uh, bent. The way I would describe sensors is we exploit the weirdness of quantum mechanics to make a better sensor. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I, uh, I have to be careful when I say this, I can't think of a sensor right now that we, we can't do in a classical sense as well, but just in the quantum world, it's better. Okay. So, for example, um, like I said, the work that I do, measuring acceleration, mm -hmm. we can do that with classical devices, just quantum mechanically, we can do it better. Mm -hmm. um, rotation sensing, we can do better, but we've got classical rotation sensors, that mm -hmm. type of stuff. What are some more examples of, of uh, utilization, operational utilization of uh, quantum sensing? So, for example, uh, a marine infantryman mm -hmm. picking indoors, uh, a special warfare officer or, or uh, special warfare uh, subs, space, etc. Sure. Okay. Well, let's start with uh, let's start with the gravimeter, um, and actually, I'm going to do a, a, a variant on that. So, it, I can take 
two gravimeters, right? They're, they're measuring gravity, and I'm going to separate them by about a meter okay. vertically. Okay, so put one on the ground and one at waist level. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I'm going to measure gravity. And you're going to say, well, that's kind of a dumb thing to do, right? You're going to get the same answer, right? Gravity is gravity. Ah, no, it's not. There is actually a very small difference in those two measurements because the gravimeter that's higher is further away from the center of the Earth. So gravity is a little bit less. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I can take that device now and move it around and use it to help me find areas of local gravity that change a little bit. Mm -hmm. That would be another way of saying a hidden tunnel mm -hmm. or a cave. So now let's go to Afghanistan where we might be trying to find where's the Taliban hidden, where you know, um, is ISIS hidden? Mm -hmm. Where are some of the caves? We could use some of these uh, gravity gradiometers to try to find tunnels, let's mm -hmm. say. For, that's a one example. Uh, does it have the fidelity that even an IED these sensors can pick up? So with IEDs, my understanding is at the moment, no. And IEDs are probably better detected um, maybe using some of their magnetic signatures. If you've got metal in there, that's usually a better mm -hmm. signature. But one could envision eventually getting there. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, again, keeping in mind, of course, to be useful, you got to move this stuff around. And so we'll have to get to the technology where I don't have to take the instrument, set it on the ground, and wait for it to settle for 24 hours before I move it. <laughs> sure. But then kind of circling back to your question, um, where else can I do this, uh, use this technology? Gyroscopes is the big one that I'm focused on. Mm -hmm. um, as I said, submarines go under the water, they lose GPS, and then they're told, okay, I want you to navigate from here to here, you know, with, with no GPS. Well, you know, we can't do that nowadays, mm -hmm. depending on how close do you need to end, you know, to get to your target. Mm -hmm. So right now, if you're under the water, you have to navigate with our laser ring gyros. They have their own drift. Um, so these atomic sensors that we're developing, these quantum sensors, uh, will have lower drift. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another application. Mm -hmm. So going back to the application, so navigation without GPS is really mm -hmm. the big one. Mm -hmm. We can also think about using quantum sensors for, um, for magnetic detection, so IEDs would be one. Mm -hmm. Submarine detection, so now the opposite problem. Um, mm -hmm. You know, where's the bad guy's submarine? You can use quantum sensors to detect their magnetic signature. Mm -hmm. So that might be another application that they should be interested in. Any biomedical applications? Uh, yep. Um, so right now, if you need to go in for, um, you know, for an MRI where they stick in the big tube mm -hmm. um, and you've got these big magnets that circle around you, first of all, that's always done in a shielded environment and you've got these big magnets, and, and I don't know if you've ever had one done. I had one done that can be very claustrophobic. Sure. You're in something the size of a coffin, and you've got this big clanking thing next to you. Very loud. Yeah, very loud, and, and you're in a confined space. Mm -hmm. What if I could make a sensor that didn't need these big clanking magnets because it's sensitive enough? Mm -hmm. uh, and I've seen research by, uh, by others, um, Princeton, for example, where they just have a little helmet that they put on your head um, very lightweight, no noise, mm -hmm. and they can map out, map out with magnetic signals what your brain is doing. Mm -hmm. wow. So that's that's another biomedical application. Mm -hmm. What are some, uh, we've spoken about uh, primarily military applications, what mm -hmm. commercial applications are there out there for uh, quantum sensors, and what is the state of um, uh, the, the commercial sector researching quantum sensors? 
So that was a, a little trickier I f because I think this is a technology for the moment. By the way, we have not talked about clocks. That's also in, in there. Mm -hmm. From the commercial sector, I feel like DOD is, is pulling the technology rather than the commercial sector driving it. I think, for example, right now we have you know, sensors in our car, these um, smart cars that drive themselves. Um, which I would never want to trust. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we do have accelerometers and, and gyroscopes in them. Mm -hmm. And they're probably good enough or getting good enough. Mm -hmm. I don't think quantum sensors is going to help there. Mm -hmm. So I think at the moment, I think it's being DOD pulled okay. rather than a push <coughs> from, from industry. Now, having said that, mm -hmm. I do have friends in industry that are working in quantum sensors. Mm -hmm. um, but they are mostly for the DOD applications. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I read, uh, it was a couple years back even, about a, a quantum sensor application <coughs> for the door kickers, for our Marines or, or uh, others on the ground that can see around corners. Can you talk a little bit about that? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no problem. Um, uh, so uh, I, I guess I can't think of a quantum technology that can do that. If I just have to speculate, I would say maybe um, maybe there's some kind of sensor that you know. Okay, let's let's back up a second, right? Why can we not see around doors, right? Because the light beams won't or light rays won't get around um, being able to see that. But acoustic waves do. That's why I can hear around a door without having line of sight. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's some kind of acoustic sensor that can then be translated into a visual. Pure guessing on my part. Mm -hmm. um, but that would not be a quantum technology. Okay. Going back a little bit just to quantum uh, communications, mm -hmm. uh, the first quantum um, uh, satellite video call uh, took place in 2017. Correct. In the U.S. wasn't a part of that. Correct. Is the U.S. behind in uh, quantum communications? Yeah, so my, my resounding answer to that one is we are miles behind. Hmm. Miles behind. So that demonstration is one that I'm familiar with. I've read that paper mm -hmm. um, and, and have heard about it in various talks and things like that. Uh, so when I go to conferences, I do talk to some of my, my Chinese colleagues. And I was told early on, you know, even before 2017, you know, let's say five years or more before mm -hmm. that, the, the message they gave me was money is no object, mm -hmm. which is unheard of in the research world. Uh, the Chinese decided that they were going to invest and invest heavily and invest in long term and set up the infrastructure for quantum technologies. Mm -hmm. The U.S. has not done that. Mm -hmm. um, yes, we have invested in quantum technologies, the tri-services, the ONR, the AROs. Um, they have invested in quantum technologies, but nowhere near the level of the, the Chinese, for example. Mm -hmm. And it has to be long term. We have to understand that things cannot go from a scientist's brain to a demonstration like uh, what the Chinese did in two years, in three years. You can't go for that's too, too short of a time scale. Um, so we are, and, and by the way, the Chinese uh, as a whole, they're really smart people, you know, um, and there are a lot of them. So th they're really working hard in this technology. So we are, we are definitely behind, mm -hmm. miles behind. Hmm. Um, the European Union has also invested heavily. They have uh, quantum hubs 
that they've now set up where they've invested heavily from a different perspective, not a fundamental research perspective, but a let's get quantum technology out to the commercial sector. Oh, okay. And so they've invested heavily in that mm -hmm. as well. Um, and I have not seen something equivalent to that. Sure. Uh, the U.S. has now finally, within the last year or so, passed the quantum initiative. You know, and great thumbs up. I'm a little skeptical because I have the feeling what's going to happen is it's not real dollars being invested. Mm -hmm. I think it's a we're going to pool the agencies and ask them, you know, how are they investing in quantum technologies? And then they're going to say, there's our investment. Mm -hmm. So no real dollars. Mm -hmm. Speculation on my part. I could be totally sure. wrong. No, I hope I, I am. Yeah. But that's my take on it. Why NPS? Why did you bring your talents here as opposed to... MIT, Cornell, Stanford, those those types right. of uh, physics powerhouses? So, uh, you know, in all honesty, coming out of grad school, I did envision myself as, you know, that hotshot professor who <laughs> yes. rises to the, you know, fame and, you know, becomes tenured Harvard professor at, at some ridiculously young age. That's not the career path that, that I eventually followed. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm really happy to be here at MPS. Uh, and I think, in hindsight, this is a perfect place for me to be. Uh, and the answer is why. Because coming out of grad school, I spent 20 years at the Naval Air Systems Command mm -hmm. uh, interacting with program offices and at least trying to guide their decisions on technology as well as do research uh, myself. So I'm very comfortable in a Navy environment. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, I would say I know the environment that our students are going to eventually be going into. Mm -hmm. Um, as I teach in my, my classes to my students, I'm not teaching you, uh, you know, you students uh, for your next job. Your next job, you're going back out to sea, you're going back out to your airplanes. I'm teaching you for the job after next. You're going to be in a program office. You're going to be making technical decisions. You're going to have to be critically thinking. And that's what we really want to teach them. And so I feel like my, my 20 years with the Navy, now here at NPS teaching the you know, men and women who are eventually going to be in those program offices is just a perfect fit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I love our student body there uh, for, for, for a different reason than if I were at a Stanford or Harvard. Mm -hmm. They are coming with world experience already, so they've got the advantage of being sharp and smart and world, you know, world experience. So they are going to ask me the tough questions you know, what good is this? Why am I learning quantum mechanics? Mm -hmm. That's, in fact, my very first lecture in quantum mechanics. Why are you here? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's a great fit. Absolutely. So some of the most effective uh, professors and uh, program managers and, and others, uh, sorry, just professionals in general that I know are effective at balancing kind of their administrative time and their their science time, the knowledge that they bring to whatever job it, it is that they're at. Right. How do you balance? I'm, I'm constantly getting flooded by emails and this and that, and I, I have a hard time in my previous jobs balancing, you know, in, in one case, just, just being a doctor versus answering 40 emails a day. Right. How do you balance that? I think one thing in our profession, uh, at least in mine, um, is a tendency to be a workaholic. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and so, you know, we definitely, at least certainly for me and, and many of my colleagues as well, we're not nine to five. I can send an email out in the evening and very often I'll get an answer in the evening. Um, so, uh, so that's part of it. Really the, the, the bottom line, well, I guess twofold. 
in my mind, I try to prioritize what's important and what I don't really have to do. If there's a if there's some chatter on the email about I don't know minor thing going on at the university, I'm not going to jump in and answer that. I probably won't even read it, mm-hmm. to be honest. Whereas if a student emails me and says, "I'm having trouble with this homework problem," that gets my immediate attention. Mm-hmm. So right. um, I'm I'm pretty good at you know, waking up in the morning, I've already got 15 emails, sifting through them and saying, I don't need to read that, don't need to read that. And it's okay not to read that email. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, yeah. not going to get to everything. You know, what is the what is the priority? What is, you know, what is my mission in life? Mm-hmm. So as an NPS, uh, you know, professor, what are my two, you know, dominant job descriptions, right? Teach the students and do research. Mm-hmm. And so I try to focus mostly on that and try not to let the administrative stuff get in the way. Mm-hmm. And I will say, having come from a syscom, NPS is a great place for that, really. It really is. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, we have to be careful of the email, but the the syscom that I left had a minutia of, <laughs> of administrative this, that, the other thing. Sure. NPS here, at, at least, you know, current administration, starting from my immediate supervisor on up, they recognize our goal is to teach, our goal is to do research. Mm-hmm. Let's minimize the impact of everything else. Wonderful. And it's great. Oh, that's it really good. is. That's good to hear. You know, just as a quick example, sure. this this, this uh, block training that we get. Mm-hmm. Show up once in four hours and you got, uh, I don't know, 10 of your training done. Great. That's beautiful. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. That is beautiful. <laughs> I wish we could get rid of the whole training, but, but you know, if we have <laughs> right. to take training, they've minimized it, and that's sure, great. Sure, sure. The beauty of an NPS education, as compared to a Harvard or compared to an MIT, is that it is very DOD or Navy specific. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's the big selling point. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but time here, our students are very cramped for time. Yeah. And there's very little flexibility in being able to explore a little bit, you know, or even just to absorb the knowledge that they're getting. They're getting knowledge in a fire hose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, and so if we can extend their time, even if it's a year, right? Mm-hmm. A year is not that long of a time in terms of having a Navy officer away from the front line, so to speak, mm-hmm. here at NPS, but it could make a huge difference. That's 50% more of their time here mm-hmm. than they are currently now. So I would invest in that, mm-hmm. first of all. Um, and then similarly, I would expand a little bit more um, our, our PhD program, um, which may not necessarily go over so well with, with some of the leaders, but when you have a PhD, you've got even more in-depth knowledge mm-hmm. and the ability to really you know, learn for yourself some of this technology and be able to do that critical thinking that we really require. So I would invest heavily in that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Actually, as a follow-up mm-hmm. on that, I would probably also invest a little more in, let me not say curiosity-driven research, because that's a dangerous and slippery slope we don't want to go down. <laughs> One of the reasons I did leave the syscom and come here, in addition to the fact that here's an opportunity to teach, that's a great place, the syscoms were becoming tighter and tighter with their timelines. Mm-hmm. They were thinking concept to gray box in three years. It doesn't happen. It mm-hmm. just doesn't happen that way. Mm-hmm. So we need to invest in doing research, doing research correctly with, you know, with some end goal, that's fine, Mm -hmm. but not be tied to this idea that it can happen in a three-year time frame, Mm -hmm. right? The three-year time frame seems to be coming because our our military circles, right, the 
the guy who becomes captain has three years to prove himself before he moves to his next command. Mm -hmm. So he is not likely to fund a project that says, hey, in 10 years, I can give you the world's greatest whatever, mm -hmm. because it's not going to be him that gets the credit. It's going to be his successor's successor, successor <laughs> that right, gets the credit. Right. Yeah. So we got to break out of that mold. Mm -hmm. Is there a role for collaboration of NPS with you know, Stanford down the street, with Silicon Valley, with NASA uh, down the street? Um, is there a role for collaboration in the NPS uh, student learning experience? So uh, another resounding yes. The meeting I had right before you walked into my office yeah. was a collaboration between uh, myself and then a colleague in the electrical engineering department here nice. and uh, USC, just down the road, uh, and a, a company out of uh, San Diego. Mm -hmm. So that was one collaboration that I'm working on. But yes, absolutely, I am currently collaborating with folks up at Stanford. I have collaborators actually kind of all across the United States, mm -hmm. and I absolutely invite my students to participate in those collaborations. So they absolutely have a place at NPS. I'm always of the belief that uh, if you're working on a problem and you add a second mind to it, you've picked up at least fourfold uh, <laughs> improvement in your brain power. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so these collaborations are very, very useful. You're getting the perspective other people have mm -hmm. that we don't have, vice versa. They might be working on a problem that's not directly relevant to us, but we can adapt, apply it to us. So absolutely, mm -hmm. collaborations are you know, I would call it a, almost a must. Sure. And in fact, going back to my publication list, you will see my favorite papers are the ones that I'm a collaborator on rather than kind of just my little group. Mm -hmm. Sure, nice. Um, right. but, but tell me, why does an NPS student, uh, why is that important to an NPS student? Or uh, better yet, how does that help the Navy, the Navy's strategic goals, specifically those papers and, and okay. this level of fundamental science? Okay, good. That's a great question. And, and I think, at least to, zi to, the, to, to my first approximation for an answer, the answer to the NPS students will be almost the same as I would give to the Navy. So the papers that I talked about are centered around atom interferometers. So in a nutshell, an atom interferometer uses quantum properties of atoms to make measurements. Mm -hmm. Okay, now measurements like what? Like acceleration, like rotation, like magnetic fields. So um, you can use what we're building in the laboratory as future sensors for things like, uh, you know, for, for motion. You know, if, if I'm on a submarine and the submarine goes under the water, it has no, no longer has GPS. How does it navigate? It's got to figure out where it is by measuring acceleration, by measuring its rotation. These are the types of devices that we're building, but using quantum properties, so they are going to be better than what we have now, mm -hmm. eventually. And so the papers that I alluded to there are different techniques on how you can do that. So why should NPS students care? Uh, if I tell you that I can make your reliance on GPS a lot less, mm -hmm. that should hopefully perk up everybody's ears. Right, the Navy is heavily reliant on GPS. Absolutely. You know, and if we suddenly lose GPS, what do we do? Mm -hmm. And so these are the types of sensors that will help with that problem. Mm -hmm. And then the same thing for big for big Navy, right? What do we do if we lose GPS? Well, maybe we should invest in these type of technologies. Mm -hmm. My understanding of, of, of this technology is it requires incredible computing power, incredible amounts of energy, incredible infrastructure at this point. 
Now, are you doing this here at NPS? So the answer is yes, we are. Wow. Okay. We are. Um, so I, I am proud to say that I came here in 2017. Here we are two and a half years later. I do have up and running two atom interferometer experiments, um, which are nice. generating results. Mm -hmm. um, we're doing them in the basement of Spanagle. Let me correct one misconception. The type of work that I do, even though it's quantum mechanics, it does not require a huge amount of infrastructure. It doesn't require a huge amount of power. Okay. My laboratory is, in fact, all laboratories by definition are power starved. If we have 10 outlets, we need 20. <laughs> okay. It always works that way. But in reality, the sensors that we are developing do not require a lot of power. You know, there are some exquisitely delicate things that we need to work with. Mm -hmm. Our lasers have to have exactly the right frequency. Mm -hmm. You know, they have to be accurate to one part in, uh, in 100 million mm -hmm. for the things to work. So in that sense, they are delicate. But yeah, we are doing them here on the campus. Um, so speaking of your, you know, you decided this when you were younger, what advice would you give to your 23-year-old self? So this is advice that I would not only give my 23-year-old self, but every NPS student that's mm -hmm. here now, mm -hmm. right, is absolutely make the most of that experience that you can. So mm -hmm. as a 23-year-old, I was uh, in graduate school, you know, kind of thinking, okay, got to focus on my degree, got to get done. That is the only time in my life when I was responsible for doing research and nothing else. <laughs> None of that administrative stuff sure. that you were talking about. So why shouldn't I go to a condensed matter theory seminar? Mm -hmm. Why couldn't I go to a solid state uh, experimentals, you know, totally out of my field, you know, but I should have taken advantage of that more. Mm -hmm. um, I did go to our department colloquia. Mm -hmm. I did go to our atomic physics seminars, but that was it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would say take advantage of the experience while you can. You know, it's you can take an hour to go to that seminar. Go to a department that you don't normally visit and see what the posters have to say. Mm -hmm. You know, stop and talk to a professor for a few minutes. Any professor on campus will be glad to talk to you for hours about their research. You <laughs> know, yeah, no, go and great. learn yeah. a little bit, you know, and really don't get necessarily nose to the grindstone, got to get this done and out. Mm -hmm. So enjoy it as much as you can while you're here. And that, that's the advice I would have given my, my 23 year old self and students while they're here. Learn as much as you can, you know, absorb as much as you can and exercise that critical thinking muscle that mm -hmm. we're, we're trying to develop while they're here. Have you watched uh, the Avengers movies, the latest? No, I have not. Okay, I, I won't give anything away. Okay. I haven't watched the, the second one, just the first, but Quantum, uh, the Quantum World plays okay. a big role in it, evidently. Oh, I'll check it out. So, yeah. Ho <laughs> hopefully it's accurate. Well, probably not. It's Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. This episode was recorded on May 8th, 2020. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu backslash tridentroompodcast.